0: Good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing well. It's Steph. It is 8.37 a.m. on the 30th of January 2006, Monday morning, heading to work. And I hope everybody's doing well. I would like to chat this morning about a history of coercive uh, power and and its effects. And I was sort of, I guess, inspired to, to chat about this... Two, uh, for two main reasons. One is that uh, Christina was talking about somebody that she knew who had a sister who got pregnant early and then was in the welfare uh, state programs for a couple of years and then got through school, I think did, did a college degree. Uh, I guess that would be a technical degree in, in the States. And then got off welfare and got into uh, the community as a productive member of society and all this sort of stuff. Of course, the guy she got pregnant with didn't uh, stick around and do the right thing, and so she was sort of asking, and you know, I think quite legitimately so. Well, isn't that an example of something that's good that's happening through the welfare state? Now, I mean, she she fully understands all of the moral arguments, but I mean, there are sort of individual cases where you say, "Huh." Okay, well, this person seems to do quite well through the welfare state, and therefore you know there could be some good some good in it. And that is to me a very interesting question and a very productive question to to chat about because there are individual instances wherein people do well um, from government programs. and you know when those people are um, when you're chatting with people or about those people or or you know, with anybody, really, somebody's going to know specific examples of people who do well through government programs. And so I think it's worth having a chat about this, this topic, right, and and, and what is sort of meant by people doing well uh, through state programs, and see if we can't unravel some of the cause and effect. Because the argument from morality would not require this. So this is obviously optional and this is much more of an exploration than any sort of logical proof so feel free to skip this if you're down with the argument for morality already and are you know <laughs> i guess slicing down illusion left right and center with your logical katana but uh just in case you're not this kind of question which can stall people from an individual basis uh well you know would you would you want this woman to be uh uh to be um uh, thrown into the street and, and to have her life ruined and to not have any charity and so, so on. So, what I want to talk about is the really subtle effects of um, the transfer of wealth. The, the transfer of wealth is one of the fundamental aspects of uh, social organization. Um, and What I mean by that is that society organizes in an, in a state of irrationality which is virtually all societies in all times society organizes its ethics to serve uh, economic needs right so i mean you know obviously in, in islam you have a certain a tithe right a certain percentage of your income that's supposed to go to the church and it's supposed to help the poor and of course you know there's there's absolutely no uh, nobody has any interest in helping the poor uh, in, uh, in Islam, uh, because otherwise they would recognize that the separation of church and state and the foundation of property rights does far more good to help the poor than, you know, uh, giving 12 shekels to somebody to, you know, give to somebody else after they've taken their cut and not being able to lend f- for interest and so all the other things which Sharia law forbids. So, you know, it's clear that, that nobody has any interest in, abs- in actually helping the poor in uh, these kinds of situations what they are interested in is you giving them money without them having to work for it, right? I mean, that is one of the biologically adaptive strategies that human beings are want to use. If they are better at language than they are at, you know, producing something productive, then they're going to become some sort of sweet-talking iman uh, or priest or politician, and they're going to uh, guilt you, you know, with... With the poor, right? You have to help the poor, and the price of your illusion about what it means to help the poor, the price of your cowardice in not laughing at these people and saying, "Go get a real job." The price of that is 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 twofold. Well, of course, you know, you you your economic interests are harmed, and the I- interests of your children. Are harmed, right? Because these people, um, you know, grow and swell in swollen power and continue to educate the young and, you know, make things worse and worse. And the other thing that that happens as a consequence of this illusion um, is that poor are are harmed, right? I mean, that's that's sort of the the key thing uh, that I've been trying to sort of get across. I've been writing articles about this and podcasting about it. That you know, when people say, how will the poor be helped in a libertarian society? Well, the poor will be helped, right? I mean, you're assuming that the poor are helped now, and the poor are not helped now. But then, of course, people are always going to come up with these individual objections, right? Well, I know so-and-so who did such-and-such, and and that worked out beautifully for them. Now, to take this example that I mentioned earlier, this woman who got pregnant when she was in her uh, early teens, uh, sorry, in her mid to late teens, and had the baby, the guy didn't stick around, and so on. Uh, obviously, she came from a very uh, terrible a terrible terrible family and i we don't I don't know any details about the family um, but I'm going to sort of hypothesize and I'm going to hypothesize based on my own family experience, so be aware <laughs> there's going to be some personal information in here, but don't freak out. I'm just uh, a little lab that's all. <laughs> who uh who uh, whose experiences can be helpful in generating some theses or hypotheses which can of course must be validated by reason and empiricism uh, and also I watched a trading spouse's uh, no so I'm so sorry I watched a dr Phil uh, sometimes I remember to tape uh, dr. Phil uh, my wife of course is a psychologist so or practices psychology so um, you know it's worth uh, uh, seeing what's out there for th- that our patients are being exposed to right um, so she reads uh, a lot of uh, these sort of popular self help books because that's the kind of stuff that some of her patients are reading and she needs to know what's in it. And in Dr. Phil's episode, um, he was, uh, it was the aftermath of a shopaholic. And there was this woman who was really into spending money and they tried to get that under control and it kind of worked and kind of didn't. And what uh it turned out the reason like the underlying causality behind her obsessive compulsive shopping was that the um her husband who was a doctor was you know just verbally abusive to a pretty strong degree and they talk about verbally abusive they set up cameras in the home and so they can see this guy you know yelling his kids calling them f and stupid and effing assholes and all this kind of stuff and and you know, they, uh, you, you, you could see the kids just sort of breaking down, you know, like sandcastles in a storm, just sort of, you could see their wills breaking down, you know, and two of them have dropped out of school, and, you know, they're, they can't get their lives started. So, of course, this guy, and this is very common in sort of abusive parenting, you know, he breaks down their, their self-esteem and confidence uh, because of his own verbal uh, uh, sadism, or his own sadism, and, then he castigates them for being underachievers, right? So, I mean, this is uh, this is pretty common. Uh, it sort of uh, skips a generation. Now, one of the things that uh, came up, oh, and there's other thing too, is that the man was physically uh, brutal. I mean, uh, there's a story uh, that was mentioned which, uh, you know, didn't shock Dr. Phil as much as it shocked me and didn't alter his uh, sympathy towards this guy, in my view, nearly as much. I mean, it should have completely reversed it, but when his uh, son was young, uh, he uh, took a whip to him because he ate, was eating food on an expensive couch, and you know, whipped him and and actually broke the whip on his neck. I mean, just astounding things. Of course, I'm sure he only got away with it because he was a doctor and therefore could treat the kid at home. But I mean, that's just I mean that's just beyond evil. I mean, that's that's worse than taking a baseball bat to somebody in a wheelchair is beating a child in that manner, and so I mean I mean at that point I would have been well okay the thing you need to do is you need to uh, um, you need to uh, turn yourself into the law authorities I mean I know that I'm no fan of the state but in this case punishment is absolutely required and it's the best that can be done and you need to confess to this crime and you need to do your penance and you need to pay for your kids therapy and you need to get out of their lives and you need to whatever right but but um, Uh, The reason that this sort of struck me in conjunction with Christina's question about the positive effects of of state power that can be seen is that this gentleman also was a, uh, uh, his father was an army man, right? Uh, He just touched on it very briefly, and I did get the sense that he was, I mean, this guy looked like an army guy, so that flat-top crew cut and stuff like that. But um, his father was an army man, and I think a career, I would guess, a career army man. So this is a man who uh, had stayed in the military for, you know, decades probably and had that sort of whole approach to things like uh, discipline and vulnerability and and empathy and so on. So, and this guy was of an age where it seemed likely to me that his father had served in in World War II. Again, these are hypotheses, but, you know, if it's not true for this family in particular, it's certainly true for my family and it's certainly true for uh, other families, uh, you know, millions and millions of families around the world whose parents have served in in combat. And the reason that I think this is all important is that when you look, you can sort of look at specific things that occur in society and miss the big picture of causality. And it's a complicated topic, so I'm not going to uh, obviously close it off this morning, and you're not going to be able to close it off with conversations that that, uh, you have with people. But it's important to know that you don't start reasoning from a situation that is... um, Irrational, and say, well, look, some good results occur, and I think that's uh, sort of very important. And if you are, if you're in an asylum, uh, and you know uh, somebody wins a chess game, it doesn't mean that they're rational, right? It just means that they they're sort of crazy, but they have the ability to win a chess game, right? Uh, and similarly with autistic. Uh, uh, individuals, you can have high skills in sort of math and so on, but uh, it doesn't mean that they're mentally uh, A-OK, right? I mean, it just means oh, you can have idiosyncrasies so, you know, particular characteristics without looking at the big picture of cauta- causality is not a rational place to start uh, figuring things out, right? I mean, if you look at a helium balloon and you say, wow, gravity has been suspended, everything floats upward right, then you're not actually uh, doing a, a sort of rational service to the evidence of your senses, and the reason why I'm going to sort of uh, talk about these um, these issues is because yes, you will always find individual situations where the welfare state seems to have done some good uh, for someone. But um, so so let's say this guy, uh, the, the 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 son of this um, this doctor, military son, uh, the guy whose father was a military man. Uh, let's say, let's say, and I don't know if it's true, but let's just say he got student welfare and he got himself on his feet and he got into university and completed university and so on. Well, then you would say, okay, well, this guy has, uh, you know, the welfare state helped. Look, he had this, this horrible parent and, you know, he, uh, he had his whole, you know, physically abused, emotionally abused, you know, scarred for life. But look, the welfare state kind of dipped in and gave him some money and gave him some resources and, and he sort of he did okay he did well after that right and i think that's something that you know people often get confused about and you know from my standpoint or from the standpoint i think it's logical i mean certainly tell me if you think it's not it would be sort of like saying uh, look this uh this uh, black guy was sort of helped by this white guy who gave him some money and and you know uh, uh gave him some uh um gave him some some, some medical help, or paid for his medical help, because he broke his leg, right? And you say, oh, isn't that nice? But then, of course, if you sort of pan the camera back and you realize that it's a slave owner who is, um, you know, stealing from the other slaves in order to pay for the healing of this uh, other slave that who's like the slave owner himself broke, right, then you would not be so much with the, oh, is isn't that nice and isn't that sweet, but you would look more at it being a continuum of horror from start to end. And so, you know, if this kid from the Dr. Phil show was able to use student welfare and, and get ahead, you would say, oh, you know, isn't that nice? Well, where would he be without welfare? And, you know, that's not the question, right? That's not an important question. The important question is, what effect has state power had on the, this family structure as a whole? What effect has state power had on this family structure as a whole? So I'm going to just sort of theorize. I'm going to theorize with this uh, family. Uh, there's some facts that we know. So I, I realize that some of this is going to be uh, a stretch, but no problem. We'll uh, we'll work on, uh, uh, on my family uh, as well, um, probably this afternoon. But if we look at this uh, this guy's family, well, what effect did state power have on 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 his on his life? Well, his father, his grandfather, was a, a hired killer, uh, or or you know, assuming he had volunteered for the military, and and those who stay in the military usually uh, have volunteered for the military. Uh, then he uh, was somebody who decided that a good career choice would be to accept coerced tax money from the government in order to um, be somebody sort of willing, able, uh, and, and uh, eager, perhaps, to go and kill people, to go and murder people, that his leader points at, right? This, this is uh, obviously morally indistinguishable from a, a hired a killer or a mafia enforcer. And, of course, the only reason that this man was, was able and willing to do that. There were sort of two reasons that this, this, um, the father of the doctor was willing and able to do that. The first is that he was paid to do it, right? I mean, he was paid to do it, and he was never going to jail, right? The reason that people don't, a lot more people don't become mafia enforcers is that the money is uncertain. You've got to have contacts beforehand. It's kind of dangerous because your enemies can fight back, and you're going to go to jail. Right, so even though the state power swells the the uh, coffers of the mafia enormously through making drugs, gambling, and prostitution illegal, nonetheless, if you are a uh, sort of hitman for the mob, you face a number of risks. If you are a soldier, right, you're going to get medals and public ceremonies and shake the hand of the president, and and so the first thing is that you get uh, paid uh, to do it, and you're immune from retribution. Uh, and, the, of course, in the U.S. Army, you're particularly immune from retribution because the kill ratios are like 10 to 1, 15 to 1, and that's as late as Vietnam. I mean, it's not, nearly that <laughs> it's not nearly that bad now. If you look at the number of people who've been killed in Iraq versus the U.S. people who've been killed in Iraq, you're talking sort of 25 to 1, 50 to 1. So the chances of, and that, that of course, is the first overseas direct war deployment where Americans have faced significant risk in, you know, dozens of years. Well, I guess you could say there would be Kosovo as well, and I don't know what the ratios were there. But overall, as a career soldier in the U.S. military, it's not like you know one out of five of you is going to become a kamikaze pilot. You're actually fairly immune from the risk of war, especially if you get into a senior role, right? And um, so it's uh, not that dangerous. Uh, you're well paid, and you f- obviously get huge benefits after like 20 years of working. You can retire, which is not uh, not too bad. And, of course, there's social approval to it as well. So, uh, you know, everybody thinks, ooh, you're a soldier, ooh, you're protecting my liberty, ooh, the guns are facing outward, not inward, isn't that great? And, of course, nobody associates, the, the, the nobody has the, uh, well, few people have the patience or the, the logical uh, rigor to trace, you know, the deployment of troops to, to uh, overseas, to the sort of general rampant hostility to the U.S. and foreign countries, you know, such that the U.S. Uh, people who travel in Europe have to wear a Canadian flag and so on. So that is why he was able and willing to become a doctor, uh, to become a soldier this guy's uh, father. And of course because he was uh, a paid uh, killer then uh, he became uh, evil, right? I mean there's you, you say or he was evil at, at first and then the ba- the paid killer just made it worse. It what it did was it made it unrecoverable. Um and so if it's unrecoverable, then, you know, if you've, if you've gone and killed someone, you can't exactly go to confession or have psychological treatment and become a happy person again because, you know, what you've done can't be undone. You can't bring someone back to life. If you steal from someone, you can restore their property and if you, you know, but there's things that you can't restore. Uh, so uh, that is uh, what, what happened to this guy's uh, father. So then, of course, he becomes uh, you know a violent and destructive brute at home. So this guy who called himself a rageaholic and you know was emotionally dead, you know obviously after you've beaten your children, you can't experience any flicker of happiness again, and you will be compelled to continue to abuse your children, or you are going to have a psychological collapse that is likely to be unrecoverable, very likely to be unrecoverable because you can't give your children back a happy childhood, even if you haven't damaged them physically permanently. So this doctor was raised by this sort of paid killer of the state and so of course you know he says well i absolutely inherited my violence and my uh, evil temper from my father who was a military man and so on so that's the that's this this generation right now the next generation that occurs uh, is is that the fa- the father grows up to be a doctor now doctors are highly highly in demand and i got to tell you uh, you know having known Christina's stories and having written about a book about this, her experience in hospitals for you know 10 years, doctors get away with an enormous amount because they're so much in demand, because there's this sort of rigid monopoly that they maintain for themselves through their unions. So doctors can be horrible and abusive and degrading and humiliating, and they can scream, they can throw things, they can do whatever the hell they want, and they're not going to get fired. Right? I mean... As I've mentioned before, the best thing you can do for civility is to um, is to lower demand for people. Right, the higher the demand for someone, the more they can act in horrible manners and uh, get away with it. Right, so I mean, uh, Freddie Mercury once broke a uh, uh, the singer for Queen once broke a, uh, according to uh, the report of an assistant. Once broke a, uh, a a mirror, a big mirror, over this guy's back because he was upset about having to walk from his limousine because it couldn't get through the crowd, and he was angry and so on. Because you know, I mean, nobody's going to say to Freddie Mercury, "You're fired," right? Because he's you know a member of a million, uh, you know, multi-million uh, platinum-selling band, and a pretty key member in that. He's the front man, right? So you you know you can't exactly fire the guy, so he can get away with a lot. So I mean, that that's you can't really do much about that in the case of Freddie Mercury, um, but. You know, wherever you have a situation where a monopoly restricts supply when demand maintains it is sort of very high, just as as a basis, then you end up with a situation wherein people can act badly without retribution or with almost no retribution, and that is something that is very important to understand. When you talk about monopoly and when you talk about the government distortion of the economy, you are talking about often uh, abuse of one of one form or another. When you see this all the time with unions and the violence associated with unions, is sort of too well known to go into here. But what people don't often understand is that doctors are very often uh, extraordinarily abusive. Uh, and the reason that they're able to do it is because they've restricted supply to the point where... And, they, of course, they have, uh, uh, the government has controlled the doctors to a very large degree, and they've done this with the full cooperation of the AMA. I mean, the AMA could blow the um, state control of medicine out of the water in about a month just by forcing everyone to go on strike. But the AMA likes these regulations because it raises the barrier to entry, keeps the prices of its union members high, and therefore it gets to take more in union dues. So the reason that I'm pointing that out is that it's no accident that this highly abusive man became a doctor and was able to maintain his practice... And I'm not saying he beat his patients with a whip or screamed at them or anything like that, but he faced no personal risk of career and economic failure based on his temper. And, you know, I bet you he says, oh, I'm perfectly nice with my patients' at work, and that's simply not true. I mean, it's simply not true. There is no such thing as Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Somebody who is abusive in one situation is going to be abusive in another situation. The only reason that he's not directly screaming at his patients is that they defer to his authority um, in a way that his children don't, right? I mean, children don't re- don't care what you do for a living. They just care about whether you're uh, a hypocrite or a you know or a good person, whether you are uh, honest and decent and kind and loving. Uh, but most importantly, they care about whether your um, morality is based on power or virtue, because you know the way that you can control t- the way you try to control children is to tell them that this is the good and if you're doing it only because you want them to obey you, because you want to humiliate them, uh, but you're using the good, then you will never, ever gain the respect and love of your children. I mean, they will forever hate you in their hearts, and, uh, and rightly so. So to me, it was no accident that the son of a military man uh, became uh, a doctor, uh, and, you know, of course, then would have all of the scope for emotional abuse, uh, and, of course, potentially physical abuse, we don't know, but uh, certainly of emotional abuse, because state power has controlled uh, the the access to doctors, has raised the demand for his services to the point where he can do pretty much anything he wants and he's not going to get fired. I mean, it's almost impossible to get uh, fired. And and again, I don't know as much about the states, but I'm guessing that it's still the case, uh, simply because there's too many people making money from you. So, I mean, you're uh, the AMA or the CMA, they're not going to fire you. They may suspend your license for a short amount of time, but they're not going to fire you because they make so much money uh, off of your um and uh, off of your salary uh, the government doesn't ever want you to quit because you know they make uh, an enormous money off uh, of taxes from your income and also uh, you know the government likes to have you know as much crappy medical care available for as cheap a price as possible so they're not going to fire you because that's one less doctor that's available to badly treat the general population which makes the general population restive and may even cause them to start questioning the value of taxation for medical care and so on So, you know, and the patients have no power. You know, certainly in the public healthcare system up in Canada, but I believe to a large degree in the States as well, I mean, patients have no power. This is sort of why doctors uh, listen to you for, you know, 18 seconds before giving you a diagnosis, and they shuffle you around from place to place in order for everyone to crank up their billables and so on. So the fact that this uh, guy's father became a doctor, perfectly uh, predictable, right? Perfectly understandable. And so, of course... In in the first generation, like the grandfather, you have, you know, paid, um, uh, a paid, a uh, paid, uh, killer uh, who is, you know, stone evil and so on. And then in the second generation, you have a monopoly protected or quasi monopoly protected doctor who can pretty much do whatever he wants without fear of retribution from an emotional abuse standpoint. He can snap at his patients, he can get angry with them, he can get impatient with them, he can humiliate them, and the patients really can't do anything about it because the demand for doctors is so high relative to their restricted supply uh, that, um, you know, just not uh, not, going to happen. And, you know, let's also look at what happened to this, um, this guy's mother, right? Because one other option that could have occurred is because these this guys had been married for like 25 years or 24 years or something like that. And why didn't uh, the, uh, the woman leave, right? Why didn't she leave this, you know, you like, what, you beat my kids with a whip? Are you crazy? You know, I'm calling the cops and I am going to uh, leave you. Well, um, and again, I'm not saying that this is directly as causally um, related, uh, as what I've been talking about, but the fact is that this woman was able to spend fifteen thousand dollars a month. Right? She was a total shopaholic, and so uh, you know uh, she had uh, gotten used to a lifestyle that she couldn't just sort of up and, and and break and change and that's also fairly important to understand when it comes to um, figuring out the effects of state power on on individuals and on families. So the fact that uh, her husband was a doctor who was part of this, you know, coercive monopoly of doctors meant that he was able to make, you know, a pretty enormous salary. And I don't know what kind of doctor he was, but let's, um, you know, (laughs) even if he was uh, a GP, right? I mean, GPs are vastly overpaid for their ability to look up symptoms and, you know, write prescriptions, you know, which is pretty a pretty simple thing to do, right? Anybody with, with Google can sort of spend a couple of days figuring out their symptoms for, you know, 95% of, of what people get ill with and figure out the um, the symptoms. Sorry, maybe not 95%. That may be a little uh, exaggerated. But, um, you know, for, for basically for writing prescriptions and making referrals, you know, which is a lot of what GPs do. I mean, they're not exactly doing open heart surgery right there in the table. Uh, you know, they generally are pretty heavily overpaid, right? I mean, they should be paid sort of like a pharmacist is paid, uh, or you know perhaps a uh, a high school teacher, but you know, of course they make like ten times that amount or eight times that amount, and the reason is because of this coercive monopoly, so the woman is is sort of trapped in a golden cage, and again, I used the word trapped here very loosely, but um you know one of the things that has occurred is that the symptom that she took, uh which is probably psychologically the symptom that kept her in this abusive relationship uh, and got her you know to punish the guy and and uh, it's the one thing that she couldn't leave. Uh, She couldn't leave him because she was so addicted to spending such a high amount of money that divorce was not an option because she wouldn't end up being able to spend that much money. So that's probably why this particular symptom is is how her uh, mental distress manifested. And, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I have no sympathy for the woman, you know, she's stone evil as well, because, you know, uh, she said on the show, oh, mother's supposed to protect the children, and I feel like a failure as a mother. It's like, well, no, no, it's worse than a failure as a mother, you're an evil human being, right? I mean, if you don't remove your children from some guy who's screaming epithets and, and beating them, then, uh, you know, you are stone evil, right? I mean, absolutely. So, um, so the mother, you know, probably had less reason to leave, right? I mean, if he was some, you know, drunken garbage man, or I don't know, like, no offense to garbage men, I'm sure you do a fine job, but, uh, you know, if he was some, some lowly paid, you know, yelling guy, then, you know, she would be much more tempted to leave, right? But, you know, because he's so overpaid, she gets sort of locked in this gilded cage and can't can't get out, or at least, you know, it doesn't feel like she can get out. So, that's sort of another example of, you know, the, 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 the large number of circumstances that sort of co-join in order to keep these children in this abusive situation. Now, uh, you know, of course, there are social workers who have no interest in in rescuing these kids. There are people who are afraid of this guy's economic power uh, as a doctor, right? So he's got a lot of money. He also, if you, you know, if you sort of confronted this guy about... Uh, his his kids, you know, maybe he could sue you, right? So he could use the power of the state for libel and, and so on if you tried to act in such a way as to protect his children. Again, that's sort of another example of, you know, arbitrary and coercive state power. And, I mean, sort of it's everywhere. And, of course, the government didn't force this guy to beat his kids or anything like that. But if you look at the power of the state... Just in relation to this family, I mean, there's there's lots of other examples that, that you can give, and I'll mull about going over my own family history, which I can go into much more detail than this family from Dr. Phil, but if you look at the number of circumstances that have sort of co-joined themselves together to uh, ensure that these children get abused, right, or to create an enormous likelihood that these children will get abused, Right, I mean, the government taxes people in the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s to pay for this guy's father to go around the world and kill people, you know, which completely corrupts his moral uh, soul and you know causes him to become a violent and and abusive person if he wasn't already, or cements it even if he was already. You know, this guy becomes a doctor, wherein he has you know arbitrary and ridiculous levels of authority based on the monopolies that doctors have, and can be abusive and destructive. Uh, without, um, you know, having any threat towards his career advancement or his career as a whole. And also, um, uh, you know, the amount of money that he makes through this monopoly is uh, exorbitant relative to the services that he's providing, and we know that because there is a restriction of supply, which always raises prices. And so, you know, to say, well look, uh, government power is really helping this kid because uh government power produced uh, you know, gave him welfare and you know, he's got all these opportunities and it subsidized his schooling and so on. Well, you know, <laughs> you can't just look at one aspect of state power. You really can't. You can't just look at uh, you know, a slave owner and say, look, he paid uh, this guy was a uh, leg was broken and he paid to get the let I mean that's a leg fixed. That's nice. I mean, you have to look at the entirety of it and it's a complex and subtle a uh, form of history to figure out what uh, effects state power has in the corruption of families and the creation of people who need things like the welfare state and so on. And so um, the, the other thing I was going to talk about, but it's been a fairly quick drive, and maybe I'll chat about it more this afternoon, is, you know, this woman that Christina's friend knows, or someone that Christina knows, her sister, who ended up getting pregnant very young, having her kids and then uh, having state welfare, Uh, For a time, and uh, the history of that, uh, I'll talk about that briefly this afternoon, and then talk a little bit more about my own family history, which, of course, I can go into more detail about how it was that I ended up in Canada with uh, abusive an abusive mother and no sort of family support. You know, there's not, uh, you know, the role of state power is not insignificant in the chain of events that led to that and uh, I think it's worth chatting about. I won't go into any kind of gruesome details, but I think it's worth chatting about just so that you understand that this kind of uh, evil is a continuum, and a good chunk of it is rooted in the abuse of power that occurs at the state level, and of course a good chunk of that is rooted in the abuse of power that occurs philosophically uh, through, uh, through religion and nationalism. But uh, we'll leave that for this afternoon, so I hope you're doing well, and I will talk to you soon. All the best, as always.